Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here in Washington, D.C. at the conclusion of a fascinating Atlantic Council discussion with Ina Eriksson Sarayda, Norway's foreign minister, and that conversation was headed up by the Atlantic Council's executive vice president, uh, Damon Wilson. Damon, thanks very much for taking time. Uh, you're in hot demand with a lot of reporters here. Um, I want to start off with um, the macro issue which you were trying to push on. Uh, the message, obviously, from uh, Minister Sarida was the importance of showing unity. We've heard this That's across right. the board. Right. I've spoken to about 10 NATO foreign uh, and uh, foreign, min foreign and defense ministers over the past couple of months. It's been a consistent message, but everybody is expecting, uh, in some respects, a train wreck in Brussels. Um, you know, looking at the, the debacle that we saw at the G7 summit and the signal of disunity. Let me start with the first question. How, how, how can the United States and its arms of government somehow play a constructive role when the president himself is driving a completely different agenda that is totally discordant from the messaging that you see from Secretary Mattis, for example, Pompeo or other arms of government. Terrific. Thanks, Vaga. It's great to be here with you. And I think as we just heard from the minister, Mr. Sarida is making the case uh, here in Washington just a little over two weeks before the summit that the most important thing coming out of Brussels is alliance solidarity. And you're right. It's going to be tricky. It's going to be complicated. Uh, but look, there are a couple of ways to think about this. The president came into office laying down two big markers. Our allies aren't paying enough for their defense. Uh, and the alliances obsolete was the term he used. And so for those in the administration, there's an opportunity, if they so choose it, to what I would call a pivot to the positive, that they can make the case that since the president took office, that there has been a substantial increase in European investment in their own defense, and that there is a turnaround on that trend, and there are plans to actually be able to meet some of the targets that were agreed at Wales, 2% of GDP, 20% of investment. It's glass half empty or glass half full. It's kind of up to the president on which he adopts. The same with NATO's obsoleteness. We've actually seen a pretty dramatic adaptation inside the alliance as it comes to readiness, mobility, command structure, and its operations both in Afghanistan, the upgrades of, of its operation in Iraq. So again, it's kind of up to the administration. Do you want to look at that and say the alliance has responded, adapted, and is now more relevant to the threats we're facing, or do you want to continue to bash it? I think what we're hearing from the minister just now and from many of our allies is almost a plea that come to the summit and talk about how we've made that progress while we still not denying we have work to do. That is the big decision pending before the administration right now. Which way will President Trump go on that question? Um, it's been a plea, but we saw pleas on the climate uh, accord. We saw pleas on the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, both of those were um, ignored. Uh, and there is very much a concern that, um, as, as we heard from the minister, Norwegians are great uh, uh, Russia whisperers and Russia understanders. Uh, that's not a word. I apologize for that. But, Putin you know, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. But that's um, not what they are. So. Um, the, the, you know, the issue of, of sort of clarity, firmness, and predictability, none of those things are evidenced by the president. And there are concerns, for example, that he could uh, reduce support for uh, exercises, uh, make in his summit meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin a series of deals that were totally surprising, as we saw in the North Korea instance of stopping exercises. Um, how to address that aspect of the relationship, which has 
all of our allies positively startled that an American president may be the one to make the biggest concessions to the well, Russians. Look, I think I don't think the sky is falling here. I think I think there are uh, quite a few things that have taken place that make it clear that no grand bargain, if you will, in which the president sells out, whether it's allies or partners or other big things, it's actually not politically viable. I think our Congress has been clear about that. That's where our national debate is, and I don't think that's where the White House can go. I don't think they even could go there. But I'm not sure if, if you think about what we're looking at right now, it's a little schizophrenic. I mean, there is a lot of truth to the fact that if you look at the exercises, our force structure and deployments in uh, the East, um, if you look at uh, the investment that we're making through the European Deterrence Initiative, if you look at our reaction on sanctions, on expulsions, arguably there is an incredibly strong response to standing up to Russian aggression right now coming from administration policy. The president has that in the corner going into sitting down with Putin. I think what the minister was arguing, what many of us would argue, is that if you're going to sit down and talk to your adversaries, if you're going to talk to Putin, which is understandable, you want to do it from a position of strength. You want to bring in the maximum leverage. The president, as a negotiator, should understand that. And the way you do that is you come to the table with the Russians with the allies behind you, united. The allies got your back. So when you sit down across the table from Mr. Putin, you're coming with strength because you've got a huge alliance structure that stands behind what the United States is doing, and you've got real policies that have actually inflicted some, some pain. And that gives you something to work with. Now, we'll see. We'll see how much of this is bravado and rhetoric and drama and the president's desire to really occupy that, that public media space. Um, and where that comes into connection with the reality of understanding that it is frankly in American interest, it is in the president's interest to come out of this NATO summit with the allies with the United States, not the allies separated from the United States. That weakens his hand. Um, uh, last question, because I know you've got to go. Um, is there a danger in your mind that Vladimir Putin, who takes every, you know, unity has been the one thing actually that's been the most powerful deterrent in a, to an extent with Putin knowing that, wow, everybody has locked arms here, so I may not be able to get away with anything. But the notion that there are fractures, for example, you know, the Italians were willing in sure, the G7 sure. to go with, uh, for example, readmitting the, the Russians, you know, sort of no conditions on it. Uh, nobody disputes there should be dialogue with the Russians, but perhaps that might not be the best forum in which to do it. Is there a concern at all in your mind as somebody who's watched this space for a long time and worked this space when you were over in the White House, um, that this gives Putin an opportunity to somehow severely test the alliance. It was right after a major sporting event, the Sochi Olympics, that he went into Ukraine. Now there's a concern by some that on you know, July 15, when the NATO summit is over and the World Cup's over, Putin's going to test the alliance because he saw what happened at the G7. Do you think that that's a danger? You know, I think that is, I think we would be foolish not to have that as a consistent concern and potential danger in the back of our minds if we haven't learned anything from Georgia, from Ukraine, Crimea, the East and uh, Donbass. You just, you can't rule these things out. We have to actually be able to learn from that. That said, um, you know, I think it's not, you know, part of what I believe is that Putin's actions on the foreign policy stage are very much driven by his, his, his effort to create a sense of domestic legitimacy, that by protecting Mother Russia from threat from the West, by exaggerating, creating this perception of a threat from the West, that he creates a rational base among the Russian population for why, even as a corrupt autocratic leader, he should be president of Russia. He's just come through his election cycle. He's actually in a relative, relative position of comfort at home. So I don't think it is 
you know, it, it's not my top concern that we're looking at a Baltic crisis come the close of, of the World Cup. But if we've learned anything, we have to be absolutely crystal clear that he doesn't want to go there, that we are so committed to actually being able to respond to that, we're prepared for that, that it, it's a no-go zone. And it, it removes these sort of plays that he might be considering as viable options. And I think, uh, I think that's part of what's critical coming out of a NATO summit to demonstrate that, look, you know, it's of course Russian strategy always to divide and conquer, to sow mistrust. This is classic Russian diplomacy. We're used to it. And to be frank, the Russians are always going to be probably better prepared than the president in sitting down to some of these conversations. But if you talk to Europeans today, for the most part, and Americans, for the most part, they understand, they understand the game that Russia's been playing. That is different from five, six, ten years ago. Now there's a recognition that they're trying to intervene in our democracies, so dissent, disinformation, what they're doing, pressure on their out. Like, there's an, accept, an acceptance and understanding. So I think we need to factor that into our conceptions. It's not as if we have naive European leaders out there. We do have divided interests, and that's what the president has to watch out for. But do you think that for the first time, an American president is actually working to try to undermine some of those governments in order to try to boost populists, right? I mean, the, the taunting we saw of Angela Merkel, uh, the statements from the American uh, ambassador uh, to Germany, um, you know, supporting the rise of the right. Um, as, as, as several friends of mine have told me, I think we saw this play the last time. I don't think we want to encourage some of those very forces that, you know, met in Nuremberg uh, of, all, just, of all places. I have to say, it's, you know, look, I worked at a White House where we bristled when other leaders would criticize uh, our own uh, uh, political leadership in a way that was, in some respects, playing favorites and getting into our politics. We don't really do that with our allies. We're going to be allies with, with France and Germany and Italy. We're, these are permanent alliances, and we're going to be allies with whoever is running these governments. We need to remember that. And so it's a no-go zone to start to play into their domestic politics this way. I thought it was pretty inexcusable, uh, some of the attacks that we've seen uh, on the government there. That said, I just came back from Germany, and it's as if there's sort of a collective brush-off. You know, they understand that there is a reality TV aspect to American governance right now, that there is a rhetorical flair to it, and the impact that these tweets had a year ago is quite different than what it has today. Well, I think we're all at the edge of our seat, Damon. Gespannt wie ein Flitzebogen. So thanks so very much. Really thanks appreciate it, and look forward to another conversation soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.